0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the Prophetic Biography at the Seerah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, InshaAllah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ go to seerahintensive.com to register or for more info. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa ala wa ala ajma'in. InshaAllah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, seerah to nabawiyyah, the prophetic biography. We have been discussing the eighth year of hijrah. Now obviously, um, by and far probably the largest uh, event or rather the greatest event uh, that occurs during the 8th year of Hijrah, the 8th year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina is the conquest of Mecca, fajh Makkah, the opening of Mecca. And inshallah, that's what we'll be talking about in the next session. This particular week, what we're going to be discussing and talking about is what we discussed previously were the campaigns of Mu'tah, and then we also furthermore uh, talked about the um, Prophet Wasallam sending letters to the different kings and rulers of the different regions of the world, the major regions of the world at that particular time. What we're going to be talking about today is two events that occurred towards the middle of the eighth year of hijrah. Now... Of course, no event from the life of the Prophet ﷺ is insignificant or minor uh, by any means. However, comparatively speaking, within the life of the Prophet ﷺ, you do have these major events that were turning points, such as the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, the Battle of the Trench, and so on and so forth. So these are two smaller campaigns that the Prophet ﷺ, he himself did not go on, rather he sent these two campaigns that we're gonna be talking about today. And while we'll talk about those campaigns, exactly what happened, there wasn't any type of major, uh, combat that took place during these campaigns or anything of that sort. However, there were some minor, uh, there were individual isolated incidents that occurred on both of these campaigns that are very, very notable because they are the, they, they provide to us a lot of, uh, key lessons, and a lot of benefit, as we call in the Arabic language, as we say, Fawaid. There are many benefits, there are many lessons, many reflections. And even some legislation, some fiqh, and rulings that come from some of these, isolated incidents that occurred during these two campaigns. And these two campaigns that we're gonna be talking about are, the first one is called ذات <clears throat> and the second one is referred to as Seiful Bahr. All right, and both of those are basically the names of places. Zatu Salasil was a place that was bordering uh, Bilad Sham, and the second place uh, is al-Bahar, which basically was along the shoreline, along the ocean side. So the first incident that we're going to be talking about, uh, which is called Zatu Salasil, in this particular campaign, the Prophet ﷺ had sent the newly converted Amr bin Al As. Radiallahu anhu who of course, you know, pre Islamically before Islam, he was known as a major leader of his people, a leader of the Quraysh. He was considered a brilliant um, strategist and a very, very intelligent person when it came to, you know, uh diplomacy and uh inter tribal relations and things of that sort. And of course, he had accepted Islam, and part of the benefit of accepting Islam at the hands of the Prophet ﷺ was that, of course, you were you were sitting before the Prophet ﷺ. Your hand was between the hands of the Prophet ﷺ. You were witnessing divine revelation. So, you know, the the type of spiritual growth that we could not even achieve in a lifetime would be achieved within moments. Because you were there in the company of the revelation, and in the company of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam. So the Prophet ﷺ had sent him at the head of a small contingent, a small group, uh, in the direction of that to Salasil. When they got near there, the narrations mentioned, the books of history they mentioned, that they feared that the enemy that might be meeting them would be a lot larger than them in number. So again, Amr bin al as was a very intelligent person. <clears throat> so rather than kind of brazenly uh, just kind of rush or you know run into battle, what Amr bin Al-Aas, anhu did was yastamidduhu. He sought uh, reinforcements from the city of Medina. He wrote to the Prophet ﷺ, sent a messenger, and said, "We need some reinforcements." So, الله الله The Prophet ﷺ said, not only will I send you reinforcements, but I'll send you the best people that I have. So the Prophet ﷺ uh, he said, okay, who amongst the senior companions, the early, early converts to Islam, the early sahaba, the muhajirun, who amongst them is ready to go? Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and many of the early muj- muhajirin, the Meccan Muslims, they basically got up and they raised their hands and they volunteered themselves and they went. Now, the first thing I want to really pause very quickly for and highlight here." Um, is that we're talking about the Abu Bakr and the Umar Radiallahu Anhuma and people of that caliber. Right? These are folks that have at this point in time put in twenty years by the side of the Prophet. They've made every sacrifice imaginable for the sake of Islam and in the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they are senior companions, and the Prophet does actually value their input and their counsel. And they are very uh, helpful to the Prophet ﷺ. And it's very easy at this particular time, you know, in the era of seniority, you know, veteranship, being a veteran, being a senior, right, in, in the cause, to be able to say that I no longer have to do, you know, any heavy lifting. I shouldn't have to. I've earned my stripes. Right, I don't do that anymore. So when the call is made, and this is also key on the part of the Prophet ﷺ, this is the tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, this is the, the 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 mentorship, and the continuous spiritual development provided by the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ was very cautious and very you know particular about this, that how do I not allow the senior most even of the companions to become spoiled. To kind of start too, and not that the Sahaba radiallahu taala anhum were you know had any inclination of that, but it's a lesson because the Prophet salallahu alaihi is our role model. That generation is a is a uh, template, is basically teaching us how to operate and how to do things. So the Prophet salallahu alaihi he himself says, no, no, no. Not only will reinforcements go, but the senior most companions will go. And Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu taala anhumah, they don't just kind of look around and be like. What? What are you looking at me for? You know who I am? You want me to go? Do you have even any idea who you're talking to? I was doing this when you were still in diapers. Right? Yes, we should respect our elders and respect our seniors and respect people who've been doing you know, hard work for a very long time. But it's that balance, it's that beautiful balance of the sunnah that the Prophet ﷺ taught us. We respect the seniors, we respect those who've been making you know, efforts long before we even understood anything. But the advice of the Prophet ﷺ to them is also they should never consider themselves above any type of work. Rolling their sleeves up, doing some heavy lifting, getting involved, doing what needs to be done. And so Abu Bakr and Omar radiyallahu talaaahu raise their hands and volunteer, ready. Bismillah. Right? If right now a call is made that you know we need some folks to go and you know maybe there's a there's a little bit of a mess in the Wudu area in the restroom. Can anybody clean up? Uh, So we make an announcement. You know who's ready to go and help out? And I'm sitting here being like, okay, so who's ready to help out? Yalla, bismillah. You know how much reward you get? But me, my son, my brother, look. This thobe this is very nice looking, right? So there's that idea. But do I still have the willingness to you know, pull off my sweater, roll up my sleeves and go in there and do some work or not? Or now do I consider myself above this, beyond this? It's a very, very interesting idea. And that's what the Prophet instilled within the companions. And that's what we need to hear again today. So Abu Bakr and Umar رضي الله تعالى عنهما, volunteered themselves. And by the way, that's, say, you know, like the, as the old expression goes, it's not really authenticated completely as a hadith of the Prophet, but it's a, it's a saying of the wise and the ulama and the scholars, and the meaning of it is something that has been very near and dear to the hearts of Muslims for a very long time, and that is, Sayyidul Qawmi Khadimuhum That a true leader of the people is the one who serves his or her people. That's a true leader of the people. So that's what made Abu Bakr and Umar عنه, the leaders that they were. So, anyways, they volunteer, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam ammarah alaihim about Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. The Prophet didn't even put Abu Bakr and Umar in charge of the reinforcements. He put another senior companion, I'll be it Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah radiAllahu anhu, He put him in charge. So, Abu Bakr, can you imagine any scenario where there's a group? In which Abu Bakr or Umar, let alone both of them are in, where either one of them is not in charge of that group? Is that even fathomable to us? Can we even comprehend that? But neither one was in charge. Abu Ubaidah was in charge. Abu Ubaidah is also a great person, right? The Prophet Sallallahu said, Aminu hadil Ummah, the most trustworthy man of this Ummah. Right? So he's put in charge. But this, this lesson in leadership gets even better as we proceed, as we move along. So when they go and they proceed and they meet up with Amr bin al-As and the original group of Muslims that had gone out there, they meet up with them. Amr bin al-As, again, because, you know, and you kind of see the element of him being somewhat new to Islam or newer to Islam, right? You see some of the dynamics here. And again, he's coming from, you know, imagine somebody sometimes comes from a very, you know, corporate structure or somebody comes from after spending a long time you know, in the corporate world and then kind of enters into uh, more of the community realm, a lot of times they come with certain ideas or notions or ways of doing things that, you know, we're kind of like, well, that's not totally how we do things here. Or that's not how we talk here. That's not how we... That's not the tone that we use here, right? So, Amr bin al-As is coming from this very diplomatic, military, strategist background, right? Running Quraysh. And so when the reinforcements arrive, Amr bin al-As welcomes him and he says, okay, we need to, we need to brief here. I need to give you a briefing before you go in and join the rest of the group. Uh, and part of the briefing is, ana amirukum. I'm in charge here, just to be clear. Right? Leadership has to, so who's in charge, the, 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 the hierarchy or the, the, the chain of command needs to be very, very clear. Right? And again, this is not like egotistical on the part of Amr bin al-As, billah. He's a companion of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right, But also he's taking into consideration it's a military political situation. We have to have a very clear chain of command. We can't have anyone speaking out of turn. So he says, ilā أَرْسَلْتُ إِلَىٰ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ عليه وسلم أَسْتَمِدُّهُ بِكُمْ Because I was sent originally here, and then I wrote back and wrote, uh, requested enforcements reinforcements, excuse me, and y'all are the reinforcements. And typically in a military situation, whenever the reinforcements come, they come to fall in line with the original structure that already is existing in place. Alright, the reinforcements don't come and superimpose themselves upon the army that's already in place. That's not how it works. So I'll be in charge. Um, And Amr bin Al-As, you know, uh, some of the muhajirun who've come with Abu Ubaidah, they say, "Bal anta amiru ashabika wa Abu Ubaidah muhajirin." They say, wait, "Wait, wait, a second. We came with Abu Ubaidah. We came with Abu Ubaidah. So we'll we'll follow his lead, and you continue to lead your your troops, right?" So there's a little bit of a back and forth. Amr bin says, Innama antum madadun No, no, no. You're not understanding this. You are reinforcements. I requested you. I've already got everything in place here. I got a strategy, a plan. Uh, everything's already in place, so that's not how this is going to work. And so, at that particular time, Abu Ubaidah Radiallahu ta'ala when he saw this situation starting to arise, and he's described in the narration of Behati as kan alrajulan hasan alkhuluk lagina shima, that he was a person who was very well mannered and he was very gentle and soft and kind of gracious, kind in his approach. In a very soft touch, right? How he handled people, how we spoke to people. So he said at that time, "Tallem ya Amr, an aakhir ma aahida ilayk Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam." And he said, "Ida qadimta ala sahib kafatatawa'a." He says that. Listen, Amr. Listen, the last thing that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam told me before I left was, "When you get there to Amr, when you get there to your friend to Amr, fatatawa'a work." Together. Work together. That's what the Prophet ﷺ told me. In another narration, Abu Ubaida, he basically says that the Prophet ﷺ, before he sent me, he said, لا تختلفا. Make sure that you all don't get into it. You don't argue and debate. But you have a unified front. And then Amr bin al-Az, he says that, asaytani إن عَصَيْتَنِي uti so even if you are being you know you don't want to take my follow my lead I will follow your lead another narration he says that asaytani I will follow your lead and Amr uh فقال له عمر فاني امير عليك وإنما أنت مدد لي. all right he says so okay so if we're clear I'll be leading and you'll be supporting me you'll be following my lead and um Abu Ubaida at that time, he says, absolutely. Abu Ubaida al imara Amr bin He surrendered the leadership to Amr bin Al As, and Fassala Amr bin Nas, and Amr bin Al As led the prayer for the entire group because leading of the prayer at that particular time was part of that leadership structure, and it was symbolic of that leadership. So again, the lesson here is obviously it is very very obvious that this was Abu Ubaida ta'ala and Amr bin Al As. Accepted Islam weeks, months, if, if, not, if not weeks ago. right? He's accepted Islam a few weeks ago, maybe a few months. And Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala anhu has been in the trenches for over a decade. right? So you think about how it would be very difficult to kind of deal with that situation. That I understand that you have a lot of experience, but it's, it's experience in a different realm. Right? Not here in our amongst us and in our community. And again, Abu Ubaidah having that seniority, if he would have kind of dug his heels in, who pe- who would have people probably lined up behind? Abu Ubaidah? the man who's been with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi for fifteen plus years? Or would have would it have been Amr bin al as very respectful companion of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi But at the same time in that community he's been there for a couple of months. Who do you think the folks would have sided with? Right? But again, Abu Ubaidah radiallahu ta'ala, what he learned in those 15 years is not that I'm more entitled, not that I deserve this position, or I'm entitled to this leadership or this power. What he really learned during those 15 years by the side of the Prophet is that unity is the greater cause, humility is the most admirable trait. And it's not about me, it's not about him, it's not about anybody, it's about the cause. Whether it's me, whether it's him, whether it's a third person. And let's not forget that you have other forms of that inspiration as well, where Abu Bakr and Umar are all sitting there quietly saying, you let us know who's in charge and we're here to follow. The Abu Bakr, who accepted Islam before anybody else, whom the Prophet wasallam." He has given so many times, has you know, mentioned paradise for him. That Abu Bakr is sitting there quietly. At no point was it finally like, okay, listen guys, neither one of you is in charge, I'm actually in charge. Right? But nothing. Sat there quietly. Whoever's in charge is let me know. wa ta'na. وَأَطَعْنَا We're here to do work. Because the work is what's important. So this was a very, very powerful, uh, you know, reflection from this. And uh, related to this, when they got back to the city of Medina, and I'm going to be talking about that in just a moment, but just related to this while we're here, connected to this, when they got back to the city of Medina, Amr bin al-Asr radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, it's a hadith, uh, that's mentioned in Bukhari, Amr bin al-Asr radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, he says that when we got back, and at that point in time, you know, I was just. He says, I got back to Medina, and by that time, I was kind of thinking to myself that, look, I was just in charge of a group in which there is Abu Bakr, there is Umar, and the Prophet ﷺ put me in charge. Huh that must obviously mean that even I have underestimated my position in the eyes of the Prophet ﷺ. Right? I mean, he's just thinking to himself from a good manner that maybe I don't even fully understand you know, what the Prophet ﷺ expects of me. The expectations he has of me. Maybe I've been underestimating you know, what what I should be doing, and you know the level of expectations he has of me. He put me in charge, me in charge of a group that Abu Bakr and Umar were a part of. So it kind of was in my head and was swirling around, and you know those types of ideas can become a little confusing at times. So he says that So I went to him and I sat down and I said فَقُلْتُ لَهُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ مَنْ أَحَبُّ الناس إليك Who do you love more than anyone else? Who do you really, really love? And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Aisha." And I said, "Inni lastu asaluka an ahlika." Of course, family's family, family first. I wasn't asking about your family, O Messenger of Allah. Of course, everybody loves their family more than anybody else. But I mean more so like from. You know, the brothers here, your followers. Who do you love? And he said, the Prophet ﷺ said, Abuha, her father. Abu Bakr. And again the note that our ulama mentioned is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't even say Abu Bakr, he said, Aisha's father. That's how much love he had for Aisha But he said, Abuha, Abu Bakr, her father. So I said, Okay. Not the answer I was hoping for. Thumaman, then who? And he said, Umar. I said, oh, okay, okay, that's fair, fair. Abu Bakr, Umar, I get it. Then I said, ثُمَّمَنْ Then who? Jazakallah khair. I said, ثُمَّمَنْ Then who? And he says, "Hatta عَدَّدَ rahtan." In Another narration, he says, فَعَدَّرِ Then he said somebody else, and I said ثُمَّ He said somebody else, and I said ثُمَّ Then who? Then he said somebody else. Then who? Then somebody else. Then who? Then somebody else. And a long list of people kept going, and my name hadn't come up yet. So at that time, I said, I, I, I thought to myself, فَسَكَتْتُ. He says, I got quiet. أَنْ يَجْعَلَنِي I got quiet before I ended up finding out that I would be at the end of the list. And I said, I'm not gonna ask him this question ever again, right? So it's just, it's again a little bit of that perspective and lesson in the sense of sometimes we can get into our own heads, right? We can fixate kind of on the wrong things, right? And more so focusing on, again, the task at hand, the work that's in front of us, the work that needs to be done. And worrying less about winning favor and having position and being a part of an inner circle, And being some type of an exclusive club member or some type of members only association, right? That instead of worrying about those types of things, um, more so focusing on and worrying about the work that needs to be done. So getting back to the incident, the narration goes on to basically say that they ended up you know, meeting. A, uh, they, they ended up facing off against the enemy that was there in the area. And just a little bit of an exchange of some arrows and things like that happened. But for the most part, there wasn't any type of major combat. But while we were coming back, they said, while we were returning back, there's a narration in the Sunnah of Abu Dawood, in which Amr bin al-As, he tells the story. And he basically says that what happened was, it was very, very cold. It was winter time and it was extremely cold. And we're out in the elements. Right, We're exposed to the elements, we're just traveling, camping out out in the open. And what happened was that at night, I woke up in the morning like at Fajr time, needing to take a ghusl, a bath of purification. Ihtalamtu. So I needed to take a bath of purification, I needed to shower and cleanse myself when I woke up at the Fajr time. But it was freezing, freezing cold. And we were out in the open. So what do I do now? And he says that, فَأَشْفَقْتُ أَنْ أَهْلِكَ I was afraid that if I try to even bathe myself, that I might kill myself. Like I might seriously get ill. That's how cold it was. It was freezing. So he says that, فَتَيَمَّمْتُ ثُمَّ So he said that by that time, the, we had talked about this in bin al-Mustalaq, that the verse is about tayammum that if you do not have water available to you, or you are not able to use that water for whatever reason, then you do a practice called tayammum. But what had not happened until this particular time is that no real example or precedent had been set that okay, if you need to do wudu, and you don't have water, you can't make wudu, then you do tayammum to replace your wudu. But we had not dealt with the situation that if you need to take a ghusl, a bath of purification, you need to take a shower, and you're not able to do so for whatever reason, that you again replace that with tayammum. But we hadn't dealt with that scenario yet. So, I didn't know what to exactly do, so I went ahead and I did tayammum. And not only that, there was another question that if I've done tayammum, I didn't actually take the bath of purification, rather I did tayammum, then am I allowed to lead everyone else in prayer who has proper wudu? Who had used water? Is that okay? So both of these questions were there, so I went ahead and did tayammum, and I led the rest of the group in the prayer. He says that when we got back to the city of Medina, the Prophet ﷺ, he asked me, um, because when we got back, there's another story that we're gonna be talking about right here very soon, which is uh, narrated by Awf ibn Malik al uh, ash'i However, he had gotten back a little bit before the group and he had given the Prophet ﷺ like a full report. Like this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened. Just a sequence of events. Here's everything that transpired, just kind of giving a status update or a debriefing. So one of the things that came up was, we dealt with a little scenario, we weren't exactly sure what the technicality there is. But Amr needed to take a shower, he couldn't because it was so cold. So he did tayammum and then he led the prayer. So when Amr got there, the Prophet ﷺ said, يَا أَمَرْ صَلَّيْتَ بِأَصْحَابِكَ وَأَنْتَ جُنُضُ You led everybody in prayer when you needed to take a shower, a bath of purification. huh? فَأَخْبَرْتُهُ بِالَّذِينَ مَنَعَنِي مِنَ الْإِخْتِسَالِ I told the Prophet Wasallam that I didn't because it was so cold, and the water was cold, and outside it was cold, that I was afraid that I would really cause myself bodily harm in doing so. I would become ill, sick. So, and then I said, وَقُلْتُوا Rasulullahi, رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Allah اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى يَقُولُ And I remember hearing the verse of the Qur'an, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ Don't kill yourselves. So that's why I decided not to take a shower and I went ahead and did Tayyamum. And Faddahikanabiulai saladism and the Prophet kinda laughed because you know, the way he quoted the ayah, like don't kill yourself, because you the Prophet kinda laughed like maybe he's being a bit dramatic, right? Uh, don't kill yourself. You just have to take a shower, easy there, right? But the Prophet understood that still you feared for your health. And that's why you decided not to and you did wa lam yaqul shay'an and the Prophet ﷺ did not correct him or reprimand him. And so this is a lesson in two things. Number one, part of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, this is kind of a technical point so just bear with me. But what we call the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is what the Prophet ﷺ said, what the Prophet ﷺ did. ﷺ and the things the Prophet ﷺ allowed the things that he approved of, the things that he did not correct. So if something was done in his presence or something was informed to him and he did not correct it, he did not reprimand it, then that automatically means that he was approving of it. So this is how we know that this was approved by the Prophet And this is one of the things that teaches us <coughs> that Tayammum can not only replace the wudu, but can also replace the ghusl in its entirety. Right? If somebody has to take a ghusl and no water is available, just like... Somebody who needed to do wudu would do tayammum. Somebody who needs to do ghusl can also do tayammum. And then, furthermore, as a detail, what does the tayammum for ghusl look like? It looks like it is just the same as a tayammum for wudu. There's, in fact, a narration from Ammar bin Yasser radiallahu ta'ala Now, one time they were on a journey like this and they couldn't find water, and Ammar bin Yasir needed to take a ghusl, a bath of purification. So he laid down on the ground and he started rolling around. And the Prophet said, "Asir ta`himaran? are you a donkey? Right? Because you know sometimes animals will drop down and kind of flop around in the dirt. Um, so he said, are you, are, Have you become a donkey? And he said, No, I have to do tayammum. He said, That's not how you do it. You do the same tayammum you would have done if you do for wudu. Allah doesn't want you to do that. <laughs> All right? And that's the second lesson that I wanted to mention here is that a lot of times. We just don't completely comprehend and understand how practical our deen and religion is. We underestimate the practicality of our deen and our religion. That if somebody needed to do a ghusl, they needed to take a, a shower, like religiously, a bath of purification to cleanse themselves, and it's freezing cold outside, and they don't have any type of shelter or recourse, like warm water or anything like that. <clears throat> then they're not obligated to basically be out there in freezing temperatures and somehow pour you know ice water on themselves and kill themselves. That's, that's not our deen. But our deen has a lot of practicality. There's an authentic narration of the Prophet ﷺ that whenever the Prophet ﷺ was presented with two options, The Prophet ﷺ would always take the more practical of the two courses of action. A deen and our deen is extremely practical. Very, very practical. And a lot of times when folks fear like, when folks feel like the dean or the religion is a little overbearing or too difficult or impractical, more often than not, more often than not, in fact, all the time, it's usually a case of a lack of knowledge. Or maybe they're talking to the wrong people, which again is that same lack of knowledge, right? Not having the correct information. Because our religion is not impractical in any way, shape, or form. So that's another. Uh, incident that occurred on this particular campaign. And the third one, <coughs> the third one is Awf ibn Malik al radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He says, I got back a little bit earlier because sometimes what they would do is they would send somebody ahead of the group to go ahead and let everyone know in Medina that the group is arriving. They'll be here in a few hours or something like that. Because the Prophet was very particular about going outside of Medina and welcoming the group back in. Welcoming people home. And also just so the families could start to prepare and anticipate the arrival of their loved ones. So they sent Awf ibn Malik al-Ashi'i radiallahu ta'ala ahead of the group. And he says, I arrived before Fajr. I arrived in the pre-Fajr hours. Like suhur time, tahajjud time. And so the Prophet ﷺ was praying at home. So I went there and I sought permission to go and Talk to the Prophet so I could brief him before the Fajr prayer because then he would have to lead the Fajr prayer and then you know maybe tend to different things. So I just figured now would be the best time. So he said, Yes, come in, talk to me. Fasalam to Ali said Salam to him. And the Prophet Sallallahu it was very, very dark, right? They didn't have lights and things like that. It was very dark. So the Prophet when I said Salam he recognized my voice, he said, Awf ibn Malik. That's A'uf Ibn Malik, right? And I said, Awf ibn Malik, Ya Rasulullah. Yes, this is Auf Ibn Malik. Right. And so the Prophet did send something so profound. He said, Sahib al Jazur. Sahib al Jazur. Jazur basically refers to camels. Camels that are sacrificed. All right? Slaughtered. So he said the, the Mr. Camel, right? Sahib al Jazur, Mr. Camel meat. And Awfug ibn Malik said, Bi Abi Anta wa Rasul He said, I would sacrifice everything for you, o Messenger of Allah. You know, you, you never cease to amaze us. Like if I didn't already believe, I would believe right now. Why was he so taken aback by that? Because something had happened with Auf bin Malik on the journey, and he ha- he's just entering into the room. Nobody else has come back from the group. And the Prophet is already talking about something that happened with Auf bin Malik on the journey. But he already knows. Why? Because of course, Wahi. Jibril salam. and so <clears throat> what is the backstory? The backstory basically is is that Auf bin Malik says while we were on the journey, we passed by kind of like a little tribe or a little town or something, and they were there was a group of people kind of gathered outside of the town, and they were you know sac- sacrificing slaughtering some camels, all right, and <clears throat> they were sacrificing some camels, and they were having some trouble. the the brothers, the the gentlemen who were out there trying to sacrifice these camels and skin the animals and cut up the meat and stuff. They weren't very good at it. They were kind of fumbling around. So I kind of saw it and I said that, he said, I was really, really good at it. I was very good at it. So I kind of said, I said, do y'all need a hand? Can I help y'all? And they were like, sure. But this is work, right? It's physical labor. So I said, okay, I'll help y'all. But what would happen a lot of times is that the way that they used to kind of divide up like a camel for the purposes of meat, for like the consumption within the home, is a lot of times ten people would share a camel. Because you know, you couldn't store meat the way that we store meat, you freeze it and things like that. So what was practical if ten households split up a camel, that basically that meat would be used up in the next day or two before it went bad. So that's what was very practical. Ten families would share a camel. So because it would be in ten shares, I kind of said, I said, I'll do this for y'all, but I get one share, one tenth. I take my share. They said, sure, that's fine. So he said, I took care of the job. I did all of that. When I went back to the group and I had this camel meat with me, I kind of cooked it and prepared it. And I sat down and I called a few people around me, whoever was around me, come on, come, come share some food with me. And Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma were there. One narration he says, only Umar, not Abu Bakr, was there. But nevertheless, some companions were there. And everyone started eating, everyone's traveling, they're hungry. <clears throat> and somebody said, Where'd you get this meat from? Where do you just get fresh meat from? We're traveling here, we're on a journey. Right, and I told them the story. I came across some folks who were trying to, you know, cut, you know, carve up some meat and things like that, and they weren't very good at it. So I went and I gave them a hand, and I took a share as kind of a compensation for the work. Some of the Sahaba felt like that was unethical. For whatever the reason, they felt like that was unethical. Like, no, no, you shouldn't have done that. That's not the way it should be done. You should not kind of take your uh, payment from the thing that you are working on itself type of thing. They kind of almost felt like that, for some reason that would be wrong. So some of them became kind of upset with him. Why would you feed us this? I don't think it was right. I don't think the payment was correct. And you know, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There was a little bit of a back and forth, a little confusion. And he said that, you know, wallahi, uh, he, he said that I didn't mean to do wrong to y'all, to offend y'all in any way. I'm sorry. But now that he gets back to the Prophet ﷺ, And he informs him that he says Sahib al Jazur, right? And he says Naam. And the Prophet ﷺ he then basically said to me, he said that, don't worry, it's not a problem. Which once again is the Prophet ﷺ approving of that transaction. So it's again the Prophet ﷺ approved of the business agreement that he made, the payment that he received, that if I'm going to cut this animal. And carve up the animal, but then I'm gonna take a share of the meat of the animal. The Prophet ﷺ basically told him, that was okay for you to do, and you don't need to worry, you did not do anything unethical or wrong. Secondly, Auf bin Malik, I was telling you, he told the Prophet ﷺ the incident with Abu Ubaidah. That look, when Abu Ubaidah got there, and uh, Amr bin al-As and him had a little bit of a situation trying to figure out who would be leading the army. But Abu Ubaidah, you know, basically submitted. He said, no, no, you lead the army. And he fell in line behind Amr bin al-As. The Prophet ﷺ made dua for him. He said, Abu Ubaida ibn Al-Jarrah. May God have mercy upon Abu Ubaidah. So the Prophet ﷺ admired Respected the humility of Abu Ubaida. We a lot of times in our culture, you know, admire a certain amount of, you know, uh, machismo or braggadocio. We kind of uh, admire this type of a very loud and proud and in your face, take charge, you know, big man on campus type of attitude. That's what we admire in our culture, unfortunately. The Prophet ﷺ admired humility. The Quran says. وَعِبَادُ الرّحْمَنِ الَّذِينَ يَمْشُونَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ هَونًا. The Quran admires humility. The Prophet, you know, appreciated people's humility. So, those were um, some of the, as I mentioned, some of the isolated incidents related to this particular campaign. The second campaign that I talked about, سَيْفُ bahar this is particularly notable for one reason. And the reason for that is that Abu Ubaida, radiAllahu taala anhu, he was in charge of this particular campaign. Abu Ubaida was in charge of this campaign. And there were about 300 people who were sent with Abu Ubaidah. And they were sent along the sea, along the sea line, along the shoreline. They were sent to basically scout out that region and make sure that there were no forces that were gathering, looking to try to attack the Muslims. So it was more like an intelligence gathering, kind of scouting party. So 300 Muslims under the leadership of Abu Ubaidah. One of the Muslims who was in that group, Jabir bin Abdullah, he narrates this hadith that is found in the books of Bukhari and Muslim. It's narrated by Imam Malik, so it's a very authentic narration. He says that Jabir radiAllahu anhu, when telling the story, Wahab bin Kisan, who is a Tabi'i, he basically says Jabir was telling this the story, and he said that you know when we set out initially, we felt like we had enough food, and every day you know we would sacrifice certain we, we had extra animals with us for food, and we sacrifice the animals so that there'd be meat for everybody in the group and things like that. We had these we we had we were pretty comfortable. But then it's like the journey lasted longer than we expected. And we started running out of food. So at that particular time, Abu Ubaidah, he asked everyone to bring all of the food and the rations and everything that they had. We got it all together, he put it into one place, and he basically started handing out rations. Like seven dates or five dates per person type of thing. And it eventually the rations ran so low that we started getting one date a day. Wahab bin Kisan, who's listening to the story, he stops Jabed, his teacher, the Sahabi radiallahu anhu, and he says, How would you ever survive on one date? How does a person, a grown person, survive on one date? He he says in one narration, Namusuha kam, uh, Sabi, that we would sit there and we would like kind of like suck on the date. Like how a child would sit there and kind of suck on something. We would nibble at it and things like that. And then we would just kind of like slowly, slowly eat it, really try to like make the most of it, and then just drink a lot of water on top of it and try to live off of that. And he said, we understood the value of one date when we didn't even have that anymore. Eventually a point came where Abu Arbaidah called everyone and he said, we're all out of rations. And we were along the sea line, the shoreline, so it's like a desert running into the ocean. So there's no food to be had there. So now, he's just like, tawakkalna ala Allah, And he said, all day long we somehow kind of got through and then when we went to go sleep at night, we were so hungry, the pangs of hunger, we couldn't even sleep. So then some folks started like pulling leaves from trees and then they would soak it in water and then we would just basically eat that and drink the water. Just trying to get something in our system. And he said the situation started to become very, very dire. He says until... We were on the, on the shore and there was this gigantic creature that had been beached. Kind of must have been brought out by the ocean. It was a whale. But these are the Arabs. They're desert dwellers. They have no idea. They've never seen a whale before. So some of the narrations are quite interesting where some of them are just a this gigantic creature. Right? They don't know what to make of it. And some of the some of the narrations actually, remember, mention al-ambar, that it was a whale. And they say this gigantic creature was there, and some of the people were kind of like, because the ruling in Islam is that you're not supposed to eat from a uh, an animal that land animal that you find dead, like roadkill or something like that, carrion, meta. You're not supposed to eat it. You have to kill the animal fresh. But obviously the ruling with seafood and fish and things like that is different. And so, but because a lot of folks didn't know what to think, like that's not a fish. <laughs> In some of the narrations, they actually, the word that they used to describe it is mithru dharib. They said that's a small mountain. That's a mountain. it means a small mountain, jabal sagheer. That's a small mountain. So there was a little bit of a conversation like what do we do? Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? And eventually... You know, Abu Ubaidah basically said that a lot of folks think, think it's okay because it's from the ocean, it's from the sea, okay. But those folks who are not really completely sure, you know, at this point in time, we're starving to death. So we are illamaturitum ilahi, as the Quran says, unless you find yourself at the brink of death, then you just gotta survive whatever that takes. So Bismillah. And then they just talk about it. It's so interesting how they talk about it that they say that we ate, we were 300 people and we ate from that animal for a whole month. We survived off that animal for a whole month. 300 people ate from that animal for a whole month. And he said that, you know, we had become started to, you know, your cheeks started to go in and we started to become kind of really, you know, emaciated, malnourished. And on top of that, because it was a desert and things like that, and when you're not, you know, eating and drinking enough, then, you know, our skin was kind of cracking and things like that. Lips were going dry and cracking. And he said, not only did this animal have meat, but all the fat, the blubber, the flesh and things like that. And he said, we started, we would take that, we would scoop it out in buckets, we'd warm it up and we'd rub it on our bodies. So he said, we were like well moisturized, we were very well fed. He said, we looked fantastic. Um, And we were doing great, we were living it up in this whale. And he says that before we left the scene, and then what we did was we had taken a lot of the meat and we had cut it up, and we had dried it, kind of like, if you will, like fish jerky, all right, salted. And, and dried. And so now that we had kind of like, we had food on the go as well. And so after we had fully prepared to leave, we did a couple of things like how, you know, in our culture, we would like take pictures or whatever now, right? So they said we decided to do a couple of things just to remember and be able to go back and tell people about how huge and unbelievable this thing was. So he said what we did was, and he said our Amir Abu Ubaidah, he was a part of this whole setup, by the way. Alright, so he says what he did was, we took two of the the bones, like the ribs, kind of like the bones. We took two bones and he made people kind of like stand there and hold the bones up. Like if the animal was intact, how the bones would be standing like this. We made people hold the bones up like that. And then a man sat on top of a camel and rode and he was able to pass through under the arches of just the bones. That's how huge the animal was. A man sitting on top of a camel could pass through there. And he says that the eye, the socket, the eye of the animal was so huge that we, that 13 people fit inside of the orbit, inside of the eye socket, like we got in there. The only thing that was missing was Instagram, right? So, so we all got into the eye socket of the animal. That's how huge this animal was. So he says that, you know, we made our way back to the city of Medina very like you said, well fed and looking nice and moisturized and you know, oiled, our hair slicked back and we're looking sharp. And we got back and the Prophet ﷺ was somewhat expecting, right? Of course, he's a messenger of Allah ﷺ. So he had a smile on his face welcoming us back, you know, and he said, tell your story to everybody. And we told everyone the story and everyone was like, no way. And then we told him, yeah, we took the bones and a person could pass through and they're like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, somebody kind of mentioned to the Prophet ﷺ that, O Messenger of Allah, there's just one little question. We weren't completely sure if it was okay for us to kind of eat the animal to begin with. There were some folks who had some questions because we found it they are beached. So we weren't sure. And the Prophet in a hadith of Sahih Muslim, he said, Huwa rizqun, lakum. This was sustenance that God provided to you. فَهَلْ مَعَكُمْ شَيْءٌ مِنْ لَحْمِهِ Do you have any of meats, any of its meat left that you could feed us? And then we gave the Prophet some of that fish that had been dried and the Prophet ate from it. He said, this is blessed rizq. God sent this for you. And of course the profound lesson here once again is very, very obvious. But nevertheless, still extremely profound. That the eye of this is the ayah of the Quran, the ayat of the Quran coming to fruition, being demonstrated, being manifested. Whoever really truly puts their faith in God, is conscious of Allah, puts themselves in Allah's hand, put has full reliance and trust in Allah. Yija Allahu Makhrajan, Allah will, shall, always make a way out for them. And Allah will provide for them in ways that they couldn't even imagine. Unimaginable. Whosoever puts their faith and their trust in Allah, Allah is enough for them. Allah is enough for them. This conversation right here really you know, it, it, it exists in a very interesting space and place within our lives. Because at the same time, whenever if you talk about this, the first thing that is contributed to the conversation is, i'qil thumma Tie your camel and then have trust and faith in Allah. And how do we kind of resolve those two things? Well, the, 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 the sunnah is always about balance. It's balance between the two. And understand that Yaumakul is not so much about you know um, do whatever it takes, by any means necessary, do whatever it takes. You know that's not so much of the idea. The idea here is about have integrity, have self-respect, put work in. But know very well that in spite of putting work in, it still might not be enough, and things might not work out as you have planned. And then, who's the one that makes sure that you'll be okay in spite of that? Allah. So, both extremes are bad. Where somebody like Umar bin al Khattab, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, during his Khilafah, there were some folks who came. There was this group, you had kind of heard about it. There were some very overzealous Muslim type folks who had come from the Yemen region. And what they had basically done was that they had not made any preparations for Hajj or anything like that. And, you know, they kind of came. And, and they were, they were kind of preaching like a little bit of overzealousness. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala heard about it and he went to go talk to them. And he said, what's going on with you guys? You know, did you guys prepare to come for hajj? And he's like, no, we didn't prepare, we had tawakkul on Allah. So he said, okay, if you have real tawakkul on Allah, you have real trust in Allah, then what you should have done, you shouldn't have come with any caravan, any group. You should have come by yourselves. Trek the whole way yourself. You shouldn't have come with the group. They said, No, no, no. How could we do that? What would happen if we didn't have food and we'd starve to death? At least by being with the group, when we run out of food, that they got food and then that way we get some food too. He said, Antum mutawakkilun. He said, You people don't have tawakkul. You guys are not people who have faith and trust in Allah. You people are a bunch of freeloaders. Right? So there is that idea of you do have to make a respectable effort, have dignity, self-respect. But there's that opposite extreme as well where we completely discount the element of the faith and the trust in Allah. Where we no longer stand for anything, we no longer have any values, we no longer have any principles, any ethics, any morals. We do whatever it takes, however it takes. Whatever it may be. But this is where that interesting space of tawakkul is. Is that be dignified, be principled, be God conscious, do the right thing, never do wrong to anyone, be fair, be equitable. And that might not seem like the best, the most cutthroat, the most go-getter business strategy in the world. But know that Allah will take care of you. And that's more important than anything else is having Allah on your side. Because when everything else fails... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never fail you when everyone abandons you Allah will never abandon you when nobody else is there for you Allah will be there for you inna Allah ma'ana so this is a very very profound lesson and then just a little technical point and um uh there's a little bit of a discussion about this incident the Seiful bahr the one with the whale some scholars um have, like Ibn Ishaq and others, have said that this incident actually occurred before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. That this campaign, this incident occurred two years ago, in the sixth year of Hijrah. But Imam Bayhaqi and some others have said, no, it occurred in the 8th year of Hijrah. So there's a little bit of a discussion, did this happen during the 6th year? Or did this happen during the 8th year? وَاللَّهُ alam Bis sawab. You know, both narrations are sound and they're there, but either way, it doesn't end up having any type of bigger political implications uh, onto the events that were unfolding around this time. But I just thought that I would mention that from an academic point of view. And inshallah with that, we'll go ahead and conclude here. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that we've said and heard. Um, also, I would be remiss if I did not, at the very least, you know, remind myself and mention, of course, after the prayer, uh, you know, Imam Zia also had said a few words and mentioned um, that it's been very, very tragic and very upsetting and very heartbreaking and very discerning, you know, um, the situation that's continued to unfold in Syria, in Aleppo, and. Um, You know, they're they're definitely... This kind of goes back to that tawakkul in Allah that there can be... uh, You know, just imagine. If there's a sense of kind of hopelessness on our part, you can only imagine the plight of the people there. But of course, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala... May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant them strength and conviction and yaqeen and tawakkul. But they probably have much greater spirits than we do. Um, But again, this is that point in that time where when it feels like nobody else is in their corner, we have to know for a fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has their back. Just continue to make dua. Uh, secondly, um, you know, continue to... We need, I need to continue to educate myself, continue to become more and more aware of what's going on, and then continue to look for avenues and options and opportunities of how I can continuously... Uh, grow in being a part of the solution, uh, not a part of the problem, and you know sometimes when these moments kind of arrive and in that moment you kind of have that helplessness um, you know let 's let 's take this as an initiative to try to find ways that we can contribute uh, to making the world a better place and contribute to being a part of the solution and uh, again, we just do. You know, the only thing that sometimes we know to do or that we can do, and that is we make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings him honor, and Allah brings him justice, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala frees him from the clutches of tyrants and oppressors, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him honor and dignity in both in this life and in the next. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallaho bihamdik, nashad wa la ilaha illa anta nasagfiruq wa natubu ilayk